Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and you can find out more. Visit the website, Johnson's Air Conditioning. Dot com. Also, by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is NaplesIllustrated.com. We've got terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He's a constitutional scholar and author and chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion about the Supreme Court decisions in the last term. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppe. He's a professor. He's also an author of Josephus of Oz, a terrific read. We're talking about... Uh, Meth and Portland, and also about privilege. We'll visit also with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston, space architecture, and author of, well, a terrific book. It's called How Everything Happened, Including Us. It just came out, and I started reading it. It's uh, really good. Uh, we'll visit with uh, Professor Bell as well. It is August the 5th, and on this day in 1861, President Lincoln imposed the first federal income tax by signing the Revenue Act, strapped for cash in which, the, which to pursue the Civil War. Lincoln and Congress agreed to impose a 3% tax on annual incomes over $800. As early as March 1861, Lincoln had begun to take stock of the federal government's ability to wage war against the South. He sent letters to cabinet members uh, and uh, requesting their opinion as to whether or not the president had the constitutional authority to collect such duties, according to the documents housed and interpreted by the Library of Congress. Lincoln was particularly concerned about maintaining federal authority over the collecting revenue from ports along the southern e southeastern seaboard, which he worried might fall under control of the Confederacy. The Revenue Act language was broadly written to define income as gain derived from any kind of property or from any professional trade, employment, or vocation carried on in the United States or elsewhere from any source whatsoever. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the comparable minimum tax taxable income in 2003 after adjustments for inflation would have been approximately $16,000. $800, $16,000. That's the equivalent. Uh, probably more like 20000 a day. Uh, Congress repealed uh, Lincoln's tax law in 1871, but in 1909 passed the 16th Amendment, which set in place the federal income tax system used today. Congress ratified the 16th Amendment in 1913. And the rest is history, isn't it? Let's talk about COVID-19. The Florida Department of Health reported 86 new cases of COVID-19 and five additional deaths in Collier County. So we've had 60,226 tests and 9,897 positive tests. The state identified the newly reported deaths. As, get this now. Here are the people that are identified as those deaths. An 83-year-old man whose positive case was counted by the state on July 1st. A 96-year-old man who had been in contact with a known case. Now think about that. This is person is listed as COVID-19, but he had contact with somebody and died at age 96. Same thing with the 96-year-old woman and an 89-year-old woman who had contact with a known case. A 91-year-old woman counted in July 31st. So you can see these are probably, in my opinion, could be natural guests, but just because for some reason they were exposed to somebody who had coronavirus, they're COVID-19. That brings the total uh, of COVID-19-related deaths to 129 here in Collier County. Tuesday, there were 129 COVID-19 patients being treated in Collier County hospitals, although more than 600 have been admitted. There's four more patients since approximately the same time on Monday. The county also has 21% of its total hospital beds available and 25% of its adult ICU beds available. So we're in good shape in that regard because, remember, all this... Uh, shutdown was to flatten the curve so we wouldn't overwhelm the health care system, not the number of cases. And by the way, Florida's available uh, percentages were the same. About 30% of hospital beds and 17% of ICU beds are, uh, are across the state are available as well. Cases are down in Collier County. We should be happy about that. On July the 13th, the seven-day rolling average of new cases was at 221. Yesterday, it was 111. So we've dropped by more than half of the number of cases on a rolling average. 
apparently, I was trying to find out where can you get tested, and I guess the best advice I have for you is if you have symptoms at all or you want to get tested, just call your doctor and get some direction from your doctor. If you're waiting for a vaccine, I encourage you to watch a debate uh, between Alan Hershowitz and Robert F. Robert Kennedy Jr., recorded on July the 21st, uh, 23rd. I found it to be on BitChute, B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E dot com. It raised real, it's an hour and 17 minutes, so it's a, it's a long view, but very interesting and uh, very informative. It raised real questions in my mind about the conflict of interest Dr. Fauci may have in resisting the endorsement of hydrocloxychloroquine uh, uh, because he's so well invested in developing these vaccines, and of course, a, a therapeutic like that might in, uh, might uh, reduce the value that he has in the patents that he owns, uh, and or interests that he has in patents uh, for vaccines. It's a very interesting story. Americans love this security theater. Fauci was wearing a mask to throw out the first pitch in the Washington Nationals baseball game. Remember that? But he sits in the stands without the mask or social distancing. So we all want a sense of normal, and it has to begin with logic and consistency at the top. Absolutely. Some of these rules that are put in place right now about masks, you have to wear a mask when you go in, but you can sit once you sit at the table. You don't have to wear a mask. I just It defies logic. Anyhow, moving on, yesterday, uh, Tropical Storm Isaias spawned more than a dozen reported tornadoes along the East Coast, killing at least six people uh, in North Carolina, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York. Nearly three million people were left without power, uh, and it's now going into southeastern Canada. Thank goodness it didn't hit here here on the Paradise Coast. Well, the, the video on this is just in, undescribable. At least 100 people are dead and more than 4,000 injured in an explosion that rocked Beirut yesterday. Uh, the blast could be felt in Cyprus 100 miles away. The, the video, this is just unbelievable. It's, and there are several videos. I don't know how people were focused on this area when this explosion happened, but irrespective... You see uh, uh, people video, video the uh, event... Uh, you know, a couple of blocks away, and it blows out their windows. The Red Cross said the number of rise than more than 100. Officials have said the hospitals are overflowing with patients. The cause of the explosion, with such a huge mushroom cloud into the sky and flattened much of the, the port, is still unknown. President Trump said his military generals told him it was likely a bomb. But there's a lot of controversy. The earlier statements by Lebanese leaders suggested that the blast was likely caused by highly explosive material that had been stored in a warehouse in, in the capital for years. There's conflicting reports, including a report uh, from Al Hadith, that claims that the massive explosion was Hezbollah's uh, warehouse in Beirut for missiles from Iran. That's concerning. And now this, back in September 2018, Israeli Prime Minister ben- Benjamin Netanyahu warned global leaders at the United Nations that Hezbollah was producing guided missiles at that very location where the explosion occurred yesterday. The explosion could have also been caused by highly explosive material that may have been confiscated from a ship and stored at the port, according to a chief Lebanese security official. Smoke was still rising from the port Wednesday when the towering grain silos had been shattered and many buildings damaged. Buildings in the area and miles away were severely damaged, including the electricity company and other government entities. The aftermath of the explosion left people rushing on foot or motorbikes or any way they could with blood streaming over their faces outside the Beirut hospital. One hospital said it had taken in 400 people and others appealed for blood donations saying they'd really reached their capacity. Like the rest of the world, of course, Lebanon is dealing with the economic health effects of a coronavirus epidemic. Its economy is on the brink of collapse due to its existing financial crisis, and there's been made worse by the COVID-19 situation. The country's currency has plummeted in value, and may have lost uh, many have lost their jobs. Sectarian tensions continue. You may recall back in, I think it was 1975, there was an all-out war among factions in Lebanon. So we'll watch that situation carefully. But uh, the intrigue about what caused this will continue, and it would be interesting to find out what really happened. Well, President Donald Trump is reportedly considering unilateral action on a coronavirus relief package, 
After the negotiations between the House Democrats and the Senate Republicans stalled over the weekend, largely on how much the next bill should be given in supplemental unemployment benefits. Now, of course, Congress has the power of the purse, uh, not the president. And uh, when he makes these statements, it, I think it's, again, just his style. He, he used it as part of the negotiating process, kind of upsetting that he can't do that. <laughs> How can he take unilateral action? He can't do that. So I'm sure it's got the Democrats upset. And uh, it's just typical to think of the president and how he goes about his negotiation process. If you guys aren't going to get it done, I'll do it myself. So interesting. The, the Democrats are putting forth a tri- $3 trillion package that includes bail bailouts for states uh, experiencing coronavirus-related budget shortfalls, uh, also a bailout for the United States Postal Service, an extension of the $600 a week federal supplemental employment benefit. It also contained a controversial repeal of the SALT cap. You may recall that uh, puts a limit on the amount you can deduct from your federal taxes for the purposes of paying, for example, real estate taxes in, in several states. That's got the blue states pretty upset. And last week, the Senate Republicans passed their relief package, but limiting the spending to $1 trillion. So, well, the negotiations will bear fruit. I just don't know. But uh, it's right now, it's in a stalemate. And uh, we do need something to come out. We, we do need the government shut down the economy. The, gov- the government needs to get people back on their feet in order to go on with their lives. This segment of the show brought to you by their good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Gulf Shore Playhouse, devoted to creating professional New York-style theater at its very best and at affordable prices, presents a fabulous new season of productions beginning in November with a world premiere of a one-man show written by and starring the talented associate artistic director of Gulf Shore Playhouse, Jeffrey Bender. Pinup Girls opens in January, singing a cavalcade of hits inspired by real letters from our troops overseas. Inspired by what they find funny, romantic, heartbreaking, and sexy, the ladies put on a show that celebrate the guys and gals who fight to defend our country. Bang Bang opens in March, written by legendary actor of Monty Python fame, John Cleese. You'll surely be wiping away tears of laughter with this one. William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream opens in March. Meddling parents, impetuous young lovers, and cunning fairies collide in Shakespeare's enchanting classic. Another Revolution by Jacqueline Bircher opens in May. You won't want to miss this timely new work about finding hope in one another through the uncertainty of the world around us. What a terrific season of productions. Tickets for this great new season are available now. Tickets start at only $38. Tickets can be purchased by calling the box office at 866-811-4111 or visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you get tickets now by visiting the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's a constitutional scholar and chairman of a terrific organization, the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Supreme Court's latest term that began in October 2019 and ended just a couple of weeks ago. Now, there was a, an abortion-related case this term. What did the court have to say about that? Yeah, this was G versus June Medical Services, and the, the, the issue is whether a Louisiana law passed in 2014 uh, that required abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals, whether that was an undue burden on access to uh, abortion. And the, the subsidiary issue was whether or not the doctors in the hospitals actually had standing to defend, to, to litigate this suit, because actually they were defending the rights of their patients and not their own rights. Mm. So the, the Supreme Court had overturned a nearly identical Texas law four years earlier, in 2016. At the time, Kennedy uh, joined uh, the liberals and overturned that Texas law. So this time... Uh, Breyer uh, wrote the opinion uh, with the liberals, and Roberts joined the liberals, as he has been inclined to do on a number of different occasions. And the majority, 5-4, against the other four conservatives, concluded that providers do have standing to um, assert the right of their uh, patients, and that uh, requiring admitting privileges is an undue burden. Mm-hmm. So now Roberts really didn't judge this on the merits. What he said basically was, look, I understand that the Supreme Court addressed this four years ago, and, and I'm going to use that as precedent, and I'm not going to step in and overturn a case that we just uh, we just uh, settled four years ago. But, of course, the other four liberals on the merits concluded that it was an undue burden. So it was a, a victory for the pro-choice uh, crowd and somewhat of a defeat for the uh, pro-life contingent. Yeah. Uh, and Roberts, I guess, just, again, using precedent as, as the reason for it, I mean, it it's a, kind of a mindless process and to, uh, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the justice uh, on the Supreme Court, who's very much against that uh, stereodecisis, I guess it yeah, is. Yeah, that's Clarence Thomas has, has ex- expressed skepticism about stereodecisis. And, you know, Roberts, <laughs> not too long ago, overturned citizens. Uh, in this, in the Citizens United case, overturned a couple of cases. <laughs> so when he wants to overturn something, he overturns it. In this case, he didn't want to create, uh, I think, uh, a bit of turmoil because it was about a, a hot-button issue like abortion. I kind of wish he wasn't the Chief Justice. <laughs> Maybe it would work out differently. So let's talk about this New York gun case that the court kicked down the road. Yeah, it was an interesting case. It was New York uh, State Rifle and Pistol Association versus the city of New York. Uh, There were regulations in New York that said that transporting a gun requires a premises license. And you could, if you got that license, you could only transport the gun to seven ranges within New York City. So, and nowhere else, not even to a second home that you own, not even take the gun out of state into a state that allows you to have the gun. Mm. So uh, this was basically a constructive ban on possessing a gun outside the home, even if the gun were unloaded, even if it were transported in a locked uh, uh, container. So it's sort of low-hanging fruit for the court. And as as you probably remember, it's been like uh, 12 years since uh, the Heller case. Um, And uh, meanwhile, the court has these murky guidelines that the the circuit courts have been all over the lot on, on gun control and the Supreme Court refused to step in. So then then came these two new conservatives, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, and uh, everybody thought that, hey, this is the opportunity for the court to make some new law in the, in the Second Amendment area. Um, the court had an opportunity to hold that bare arms covers outside the home. Mm-hmm. What, what, what more does, could bare mean than 
than uh, than carry. And if they had done that, that would have triggered a pretty major overhaul of some of these state and local regulations. But what happened was that New York City, recognizing that they were going to lose this case, passed new regulations that would allow transport to a second home or out of state. And then <clears throat> New York State passed a law that said the city uh, could not reenact their prior regulations. And then the city stepped in and asked the Supreme Court to hold that the case was moot on the grounds that it had already been resolved and the Supreme Court is not permitted to engage in advisory opinions unless there's a real issue before mm-hmm. the case. And, 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 the, and the court did that. They said the case is moot. Even Kavanaugh concurred. Uh, like Roberts, he was willing to kick this can uh, down the road, but he did state that the court should, in his view, take up some other uh, pending Second Amendment uh, petitions. Uh, there were three conservatives that uh, dissented, uh, Lito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, and they just argued that New York City had succeeded in manipulating the docket, and that shouldn't be allowed. But the liberals prevailed on this one. Yeah, so interesting. I just want to remind our listeners, I'm so proud of you, Bob, for what you did. Of course, you were one of the co-counsel in the Heller case that uh, in Washington, D.C., that helped to really uphold the Second Amendment. And uh, just uh, it's the only case I think you've ever litigated, and you won. So congratulations. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks, Bob. We've been trying to flesh that out ever since we won the case. And the courts don't seem to be willing to step in and establish some bright lines on Second Amendment grounds. Mm, so interesting. I'll just change course here a little bit. How about the separation of powers case involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? That's Elizabeth Warren's pet agency created under the Dodd-Frank Act, which <laughs> totally is bizarre. Yeah. What happened there? This was SELA Law versus the uh, CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the question was whether or not uh, the CFPB, which has uh, one director, this is an independent agency that has one director. Most of them, of course, have a commission of, of several directors of mixed parties. Mm-hmm. Whether that violates that principle of one director violates separate, separation of powers because the director could not be fired by the president except for cause. And for cause, you know, means something very, very serious like he does... Uh, some commission, some crime or embezzlement or something of that nature. And moreover, this agency, by the way, receives its funding without Congress. They get funds directly from the Federal Reserve System. In any event, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion 5-4, and this was a liberal conservative split, and said the president must be able to fire the directory even if not uh, for cause. But he wasn't willing to go further. He severed that issue, and he said, we can address this particular issue, the president's ability to fire a director, without getting involved into whether the CFPB is otherwise uh, constitutional. Uh, Thomas and Alito disagreed with that, and they said that the remedy should be to bar the CFPB from investigating this particular particular company. The liberals uh, disagreed. They dissented. And they said uh, this for-cause requirement didn't impede the president's ability to carry out his duty. So it was a minor victory uh, for the conservatives. It could have been uh, a bigger victory, but uh, the the, uh, decision was limited in its scope. Uh, just I genuinely appreciate your shedding light on this uh, very important. It's very refreshing to talk about something besides politics, Bob. So <laughs> really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to just, again, recommend Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org, the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. He's a professor. He's also an author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blueprint. 
Provence restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and also author, uh, Josefa Savaz is the name of the book, off topic for today's discussion. But Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Hey, Andy, uh, I know you're uh, a professor at a a school up in North, and uh, you're down here. So are you doing any kind of Zoom activity, experiences at all? Well, it's been very interesting. Uh, The adjunct faculty, which is my status right now, have been moved uh, into a unionization through the SEIU, (laughs) a far-left union. And so the last couple of weeks, I've been involved with Zoom uh, adjunct faculty union meetings. And it's it's amazing, uh, several things, just the, the incredible level of fear that the faculty have, adjunct faculty have, about going into the classroom. I mean, it's not just we're, we're talking about a concern, a legitimate concern. We're talking about stark terror here, Bob. Right. Uh, so I, I was surprised at the level of, of hearing people in the Northeast, the way they describe this thing. Uh, and also the, the blatant uh, political expressions that uh, are so commonly used the uh, in just normal conversation on Zoom, the attacks on Trump, the uh, support statements for Black Lives Matter. It's uh, difficult for a conservative uh, like like myself to to go through that without saying something. But you know, I, uh, discretion has to be the better part of valor. So I, I found these Zoom meetings to be very uh, very interesting, very challenging. Um, and so I just thought I'd, I'd mention that to you and and your and your listeners. I, yeah. I have. I haven't had a lot of Northeast experience over the last several years. That's so interesting. I, you know, <laughs> the pushback that you get is just so visceral and unbelievable. Uh, I talked to my sister on the uh, east coast of Florida, and my goodness, I, she <laughs> got so upset at me for my thoughts. So uh, we, we are the silenced majority, aren't we? Well, I mean, we are that, and uh, almost every characteristic of success and of of, of truth-seeking has been now defined by the left as being a white characteristic. 
if we look at, uh, for example, Rutgers University, which has eliminated traditional grammar from their curriculum because it is uh, a, a, a symptom of white supremacy. Uh, mathematics is no longer involved with the pursuit of truthful outcomes, but the allowance of intuitive expression regardless of the the accuracy of the outcome. So we can see the educational system being just uh, um, manipulated, and I, I would suggest destroyed by the application of, of leftist policies, presuming that almost every characteristic that is associated with success or the pursuit of truth, objectivity, for example, are, are characteristics of whiteness and therefore being rejected by. Yeah, that's it's so sad. I mean, th this whole identity politics thing—it's—it's it's just dividing us, and uh, it's I, they, the uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden is going to seek a black woman as his. Why? How does? Why not just seek the best candidate for the job, irrespective of color of, of or or gender? Because that is nothing to do with the general tendencies of modern America, Bob. I, I'm not even sure if, if uh, Biden can be uh, put on legal footing, uh, as he suggests, he's going to limit the vice presidential choice to uh, being a black woman. And therefore, the, uh, and that person has to be qualified to be president. So uh, Biden is actually excluding probably uh, within those two defining demographics, probably excluding 80 or 85 percent. I don't know the number, obviously, uh, of Americans from his choice of his vice president and therefore the potential president of the United States. Bob. Yeah, it's it's really well disturbing. Is is I guess the best word for it? It's very disturbing. We we search for words to define these things. You know, it's it's very it's very difficult when we when we see so much uh, uh, so much that is objectively uh, provable and so much that has nothing to do with whiteness that is that is uh, valuable in terms of pursuing success that is being rejected by the left. It's a it's a detrimental f characteristic for the minorities that are that are having this foisted on them. And I think if we look at the STEM areas science, technology, uh, engineering, and math, and they're being hyper-loaded uh, with the concept diversity, uh, suggesting that it doesn't matter essentially who goes into those areas as long as it's diverse by nature. And that, that's going to have long-term negative impact for, uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the country, of course, Bob. Yeah, well, it reminds me that many universities now are dropping the requirement for SAT scores and the equivalent. Uh, they're dropping that, and I would suggest, well, you know, what's more important than knowing whether someone has the intelligence and the background in order to uh, stay up with classes in, in a certain college? But they're, not, they're saying that requirement now has to go away because other considerations like gender, race, uh, and other things are, are, are living in a poor neighborhood, for example, are, are more important than, than the mental acuity that you have coming into a, a learning situation. Well, there's no doubt, Bob, and uh, the SATs aren't everything, but I do know if they get uh, 380 on the math SATs, they're not going to perform well or succeed at an actuarial college. I do know if they're coming at a 380 on the English boards, they're not going to succeed at a high-level liberal arts school like Oberlin, for example. So they're not everything, but certainly they, they define, uh, in, at least in a, in a broad nature, where a student may prove to be successful. And so by eliminating this, they're putting students into schools where they're, they're destined to fail or have the schools adjust the grading outcome so that success is manufactured artificially by the school. And I can't tell you how much of that is actually happening. Yeah, I mean, the, we're losing in all sight of objectivity, which is, and achievement, quite frankly, which is really sad. It's uh, indeed. By the way, I want to remind our listeners that uh, your columns are appear on my website. They go to bobharden.com and you'll find Correct Me If I'm Wrong. That's the tab, and you'll find uh, about the last year, of about 80% of Andy's. Uh, columns and they're very interesting. The one about uh, uh, white privilege is is uh, posted there, and uh, another one about crystal meth and the epidemic of riots in Portland, which is so fascinating. I'd like to talk to you about that, Andy. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right. Okay, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
For the best in food and drink as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. That St. Matthew's House uh, commercial reminded me of Lulubee's Diner. This is a place where Andy and I often meet for breakfast. Lulubee's Diner is located right in the Green Tree Shopping Center. They do great uh, breakfast and lunch, and I just encourage you to stop by and say you heard it on the Bob Harden Show. Lulubee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Andy, again, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, let's make arrangements to have breakfast again at Lullaby's. Okay? Let's let's do it soon. Okay, let's trade emails okay. and we'll get that set up. So, Andy, uh, I, I want to just continue the the thoughts though about education and white privilege. Uh, are whites really that privileged? Well, if we judge by every measure of statistics, no, they are not. If we look at the most successful groups in America by almost every measurement. Uh, economic attainment, uh, college uh, level of, of, of success, uh, by almost every measurement, Asians are uh, outperforming whites in almost every single area. So if there is white privilege, it has it has almost uh, no impact, I mean, if, if it exists at all, and I don't even think it exists at all. We can even look at some uh, black immigrant groups that, that, that do very well, Nigerians, Barbadians, Ghanaians, Trinidadians, Tobago, uh, Tobagonians, uh, I almost mispronounced that, uh, and they all have a higher average income than, than many very, very uh, strongly defined white groups, Dutch Americans, French Americans, Polish Americans, and so forth. Uh, I think another interesting question that came out of my research is, why do so many um, black immigrant groups so significantly outperform African Americans? I think that's a, an interesting question. I think it's a provocative question, and no one is going to go there and and, and answer that. So, uh, but I think it's something that should be considered. Uh, almost every black immigrant group outperforms African Americans in terms of every single area. Uh, so, white privilege is is the uh, is one of the major pillars of the left. Uh, it has no measured uh, uh, symptoms in terms of its of its impact, and yet. Uh, if you were to go to the average person in America and, and ask, is there white privilege, they, uh, to certain degrees, greater or lesser, they would say, of course, there's white privilege. <laughs> and yet, it is not measured in any way, Bob. Yeah, and, and not scientific at all. By the way, off-air, you'd mentioned the Laffer curve as it, as it uh, pertains to education. Can you tell us about it? Well, that, that's an interesting thing that was provoked. I was reading an essay this morning before we got on the air about defunding the public schools, which sounds like you're going to damage education. Uh, actually, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way which I'll explain in a minute, may actually help education. 
Back when I was a public school activist in the in the mid nineties, uh, l- let me start with what is the Laffer Curve for your listeners that are not aware of that. The Laffer Curve was created by Arthur Laffer, Laffer during the uh, Reagan administration, which indicated that certain points of increased taxation, the tax revenues would decrease. I took that Laffer Curve and applied it to education in this sense, Bob. At certain points of increased funding the quality of education would decrease. Mm-hmm. Now, why would that happen? Uh, when you are spending too much money on the public schools, they have a lot of funds available to create uh, extraneous types of, of curriculums that have nothing to do with the primary area. If we define it as reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, once there's more money in the till, the public schools can add in diversity uh, courses and, and, and gender courses and all kinds of other things. They go from a, a seven-period day to a nine-period day. And as they do that, adding in a lot of, of pur- purposeless courses, Bob, what they're doing is taking away from the essential elements of education. Uh, so as I applied the Laffer Curve to education, when funding increases to a certain point, the quality of education will decrease. I, I don't think anyone else has ever made that point. So uh, that's a gr- it's uh, a I great point to make. It's an important point, Bob. It is, and I would say the other thing that happens, of course, is the expansion of the bureaucracy that supports the, uh, or quote-unquote supports uh, the classroom activities, which, uh, of course, is mind-numbing, quite frankly. So, you know, hey, I do want to talk to you, though, about the uh, crystal meth epidemic that you wrote about in this column is uh, on my website, again, bobharden.com. You can uh, find, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, tell us about the Portland violence and crystal meth. What's the association well, I, there? I did a lot of research on this issue. Um, if we look, uh, we go back to the to the Nazi regime, particularly the the use of crystal meth by the, the Wehrmacht. It was a product called Pervitin at that point. Uh, in some cases, it was available over the counter, and this was being used by the general German population. But in uh, the attack on France, just as one example, uh, the, the, the Wehrmacht stayed up for three straight days using Pervitin. It was that ability uh, to function without fatigue and without sleep uh, that actually surprised the, the French so much that they were not prepared for the rapid German movement through the Ardennes forest. Uh, and so the, but during the entire process, uh, crystal meth was used and some of the implications of crystal meth are is it, it minimizes empathy. It takes away compassion. Uh, it, it increases the level of, of hostility and aggressive behavior. All things that we saw uh, essentially being manifest in the, uh, in the German army and in the German people in many cases. As I looked at that uh, further, you can see in America the, the, the use of crystal meth is particularly prevalent uh, in Oregon and specifically in Portland. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't have any way of documenting this, but it, it seems logical. With the incredible uh, abundance of crystal meth in Portland, with its history being associated with violence and aggressive behavior, uh, from my perspective and just in a, uh, in a, in a and I think a reasonable analysis, uh, I would suspect that many of these rioters, if not most of these rioters, are functioning under the influence of crystal meth. That is so fascinating, that association indeed. And, uh, of course, that you put that together with uh, a liberal, you know, a kumbaya group that doesn't want to have enforced law and order, that wants to decrease the police force, you know, it only encourages that kind of behavior. And, and the underlying cause for some of the violence may be crystal meth. That's so interesting. Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And, again, when I did the research and I, I wasn't sure what I was going to find, but I certainly was looking for what I did find, which is the, the availability in Portland. Now, uh, Oregon has shut down most of the crystal meth labs in the state, but mm-hmm. there's a significant level of crystal meth that is being brought in on I-5 uh, from Mexico, and, and it's, it's, it's where its, it's port of being delivered is, uh, is Portland, Oregon. Uh, so there's no doubt that this is a uh, an influence on this process, and I would I would actually say, without being able to prove it again, that it's the most profound influence on the rioters in Portland at this point, Bob. Well, I would suggest also there's money behind it, uh, and uh, of course I've I've said on the show before the likes of George Soros funding trying to create and support this kind of activity, which is really the under uh, undermining American culture and our society, law and order. 
and doing that not only with uh, funding activities like Black Lives Matter, but also uh, districts, uh, district attorneys across the uh, across the nation who are elected who won't enforce the law, which only encourages theft and uh, leads to violence as well. So there's a lot of influences, but you know, it would surprise me if perhaps they're supplying crystal meth for them as well. I, I wouldn't doubt that. I alluded to that in my essay, and uh, you know there are many things you you can't prove, but logically uh, can be can be assumed. Uh, and yeah, I mean, with the the Soros money coming in, with the Tom Steyer money coming in, uh, to me, there's no doubt that this would be a, a a strong possibility that there is crystal meth being supplied in that I five from Mexico chain of delivery. So um, I don't know the implication of this, but I, it's something that should be an awareness that uh, that the, this that drugs are driving many of what uh, many of the actions we're seeing not only in portland but probably in most of the major cities particularly in the northwest which in total is the crystal meth center of the world bob that is so interesting Andy. thanks for drawing that analogy and again you'll find the columns on my website uh, uh, correct me if i'm wrong is is uh, the area where you'll find uh, andy's uh, columns so interesting so uh, really we have november the third such an important date coming up uh if if uh, god help us if biden is elected or something happens to that effect <laughs> and law and order is out the window. You know, you can imagine not only uh, uh, law and order here locally, but also internationally, uh, changing the support for uh, for uh, China, for, well, you just go across the board. It would be very harmful to our way of life. It's hard to imagine, but certainly if they take the Senate, if they win the presidency and hold on to the House, they're going to eliminate the, the filibuster rule. And I think it's it's over, Bob. I, I hate to be that pessimistic, but I can't see any way uh, that the Democrats, once they gain that kind of power, are ever again going to expose that power uh, to the public vote. They're just not going to do that. Yeah. So I think once that is firmly in place, which is, is possible, in 2020, November 2020, uh, I think that will be the end of the American experiment, Bob. I, I think it'll be over at that point. Yeah. Andrew Joppa, again, gen uh, author of Josephus of Oz. I genuinely appreciate your commentary. Look for an email. We'll set up some breakfast soon, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care, Bob. You as well. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston and author of seven books now. His latest, I just started reading How Everything Happened, Including Us. So fascinating. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. (laughs) 
back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. I proudly serve on the board, and I hope you'll check out the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, uh, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's written several books. His latest, How Everything Happened, including us, it's a fascinating read. It. I've started reading it. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure, Professor. And uh, I, I must say, I'm just really enthralled with the book. It starts 13 billion years ago and uh, goes into the whole process of uh, uh, science and physics. It's just a fascinating book to, uh, to uh, because somebody who's not trained in this, it really is helpful to understand the concepts. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating when you think of how, well, one of the things at the beginning of the book, you know, is I had some, some time charts and... Uh, you know, first billions of years and then hundreds of millions of years and hundreds of thousands and so on. And, and you look at the things that had happened, the things that happened and it took a whole lot of time for the, the universe and the planet to kind of get organized, get ready for having the first cell and then the first living cell and so on. And then you look at, and the, and the book is, of course, focuses on life on our planet. But when you look at, you try to identify what are the, what are the big events, you know, that, that you chronicle. You know, there's different, uh, different times when they, you had mass extinctions and, and a lot of other things. And you look at the, you know, the evolution of humankind and the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens and so on, up to the empires, both the empires and the world wars and so on. But it's an attempt to look at it not from a North American perspective, but really look at it from a global perspective. And one of the challenges writing it was, uh, my gosh, when you look at the history of everything, what what do you choose as meaning to make momentous events? Yeah. And, and the ones that are really, you know, global and, and so on. And I thought it was just fascinating. And you, you realize how, how rapidly things are accelerating now in terms of, Developments, you know, with just this warp speed of internet, you know, information technology, and and uh, how we've evolved. We're creating machines now that, in many respects, are smarter than we are, and you kind of wonder where's that going to go. And uh, yeah, but I, I certainly enjoyed writing the book. Well, it's a great read. How everything happened, including us, is it? It's available on Kindle right now, uh, and Amazon. Uh, you can get. I, I'm per- personally reading the. Uh, the tablet uh, edition, but you can get it in hardback or softback as well. Uh, how everything happened, including us. So, Professor, uh, I, 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 your column, Welcome to Texas, but leave your New York and California politics behind. <laughs> That's well said. It's a great concept. People coming down here, quite frankly, are leaving uh, in droves to Florida as well as to Texas, but uh, do, sometimes they do bring their baggage, don't they? Yeah, it's for the same reasons. Uh you get you get mostly the New Yorkers. You know, they're about you get about four times as many New Yorkers as we do, mm-hmm. but we get a lot more Californians. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure how you rank who, which is worse, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But um, you know, and you look at and I you know in the article I talk about you know the corporate taxes, income taxes, and 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 all the other you know, cost of living and so on that causes people to move and the crazy and the politics, you know, and, and so on. And you, a lot of this was happening before the virus, you know, so you, so we don't really know what, you know, what is going to be the final you know, result of that. But, but this, you know, telework, people were moving out of the cities before, mm-hmm. you know, to the suburbs and to other states and so on. And, and, uh, so it was happening before and then, they jump-started all this and just turbocharged it so that it's happening much faster and you and you see them leaving in droves. And, of course, right now, you know, the the uh, liberals are, are targeting Texas. They think maybe they can... You know, they gave us Beto O'Rourke a, a couple of years ago and uh, that didn't quite work out. But, <laughs> you know, they're, but they're, they're, they're sure going to try and, 
you kind of wonder, well, why the heck, why the heck do they come here if they're just going to, uh, re- you know, try to recreate what they had when they left? And uh, I'm sure Florida has the same thing. Uh, absolutely. Well, in fact, uh, I had. Uh lunch with a real estate attorney, and uh, he, he said he's so busy. He had 32 closings in one week. I said, man, that's just unbelievable. He told me a story of one guy who owned uh, an 1,100-square-foot apartment in New York City, bought it for a million one in February, just sold it for $297,000 to buy a home down here in Florida. He's getting out, as you can imagine. And it's, a, it's a, you know, I think we, when you take a look at not only the politics, but also the violence, the lack of uh, enforcement of law and order, the uh, draconian uh, measures that are being put in place because of the coronavirus, you can understand why people would want to leave. It's just unbelievable. I'm wondering, you know, we have, we have you know, a few friends in New York and in Manhattan and in China that says how they... I don't know how they're responding to all this. I mean, how can you? First of all, it's really depressing. They're all, you know, everything shut down, and the, yeah, the, you know, the, the the life on the streets that New York's so famous for is is just the spirit is just gone. And then on top of that, you have, you know, you have uh, BLM painted all over the place and murals and in the destruction, and you kind of wonder uh, how they're really responding to this. I mean. To us, it looks totally insane. You mm-hmm. think, how can they possibly be, a, you know, a supporting you know De Blasio, and then with a defund the police and you know take a billion dollars out of their police funding and at the time that you know the crime is spiking and so on. Uh, I think there's probably an awful lot of us that are really, and and I, I think of the suburban housewives that are so famous in voting and think, well. When you think this stuff's going to move into the suburbs, and people care about their children, you know, they care about their security and so on, and and I wonder. And then I look at the polls and I say, well, I can't. How can that be? I mean, how can they? Yeah. How can people? How can be people be so uh, you know, disconnected from what's going on? But maybe they aren't. I don't know. Yeah. Well, one of the mayors, I guess, I think it was Seattle. It may have been Portland, but irrespective of it was saying, hey, we're good. this is kumbaya, we're going to cut the police budget and so forth. Well, the uh, rioters and looters came to their home. <laughs> he says, no mas, we're going to start enforcing law and order here. So, you know, the point is, if it's if it's not real, if it's not visceral, if you're not experiencing it, uh, it's easy to just say, well, it's happening someplace else, not here. But, it, you know, it's now I read in New York, it's starting to spread to Fifth Avenue, to some of the homes in the Upper East Side. So it's, it's a pretty dramatic uh, and, and sad thing that's going on right now. Well, people, I think above all, they want security and stability mm-hmm. and, and their lives. And, and, of course, the stability kind of went out the door, <clears throat> particularly with the virus and the loss of jobs and so on. And then, as you mentioned, with, well, also with the, you know, people working away from the, the cities now, they're, you know, they're, you know, now, you know, they, a lot of people won't come back. A lot of the big businesses won't come back to the Manhattan because, you know, they have to have social distancing. They have to, they can't accommodate as many people. They have to, and people don't want to get on elevators and, and so on. And so I think a lot of this movement is it's permanent and it's going to be in, in accelerating uh, with, with time. Yeah. And then, of course, the virus came along and it just, everybody developed the home, their home office and and it's, work, it's working out pretty well for a lot of the employers, so. I think that a lot of the life is being sucked out of the you know the major cities, and it's going to leave a I think it's going to leave a big hole. Um, and I have the theater district shut down in New York, and the, if and if people don't feel tourists don't feel safe, they're not going to go there, you know. And, yeah, and, and it's it's cascading, I think. Absolutely. Well, and again, a lot of people are, we have this urban flight going on right now from places like New York and uh, cities in California. The point being, hey, examine your politics. Think about what you've, what's happened here. <laughs> think about, you know, the impact that you're going to have if you continue to think the way you've thought in the past, that you're going to have the same awful results as a consequence. Well, I think a lot of people feel intimidated, too, and they're afraid to speak out. Yeah. This cancel culture is very real, and People are afraid if they say anything, you know, forget that you know, Black Lives Matter is headed by some 
diehard Marxists and, and so on. You can't say that out loud because you, you, you have, have, I just said it, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can but, say it on this show, you can say it. <laughs> but but, but, but it's, it's really dangerous, and people fear all. And I'm with a university, and I have to, you know, I'm kind of cautious about what I say, but, you know, I'm too old and cantankerous to be as cautious as many people are, but, but um, you know, any, everything has some kind of racial overtone or some kind of victim yeah. microaggression, you know, implication and so on. And, and oh my God, this is, uh, this is a pretty uh, terrifying to think that you know, this is the generation that's going to succeed us. Yeah. And, uh, Animal Farm is here, I guess, Professor, again, Professor Larry Bell, author of How Everything Happened, Including Us. I encourage you to, to get a copy of it. And, uh, Professor, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun. Uh, if you'd like a copy of... Uh, my newsletter, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, that uh, uh, website for the uh, debate between Alan Hershowitz and Robert Kennedy so interesting. Uh, you, I'll send that to you as well. Just send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you join us tomorrow. We'll have another great show. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>